Turn with me to Luke's Gospel. As we continue our series this morning in Luke's Gospel, we find ourselves in chapter 7. And this morning, we want to give our attention to verses 11 through 17. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17, can be found on page 1040 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole country of Judea and all the surrounding country. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now in these few moments, we pray that you would give us both eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, we thank you for uh, not just what this text meant and the power of what that was exhibited back then. But Father, we bless you and praise you for what this text means for us both in this life and in the life to come. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. In our text for this morning, Luke paints another picture of the power and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like last week, when we saw Jesus heal the servant of the Roman centurion, yet another situation that was hopeless, humanly speaking, became a canvas on which the power of God comes through with startling vibrancy. However, it would be possible for a skeptic or a cynic to read the text we looked at last week, the healing of the centurion's servant, and see something other than compassion. It would be possible to read that text and see opportunism instead of compassion. We need to remember that Jesus and his disciples were using Capernaum as a home base. The elders of the Jews and the centurion represent the ruling elite in that place. Surely it would be savvy of Jesus to get in good with the powers that be. It would be a benefit to Jesus and his disciples to heal the servant of the Roman centurion. I mean, after all, gaining the favor of the local rulers is never a bad idea, right? No matter how much that cynical reading of the text might ring true, we have to keep such an understanding at arm's length. Luke immediately follows that story 
with our text for this morning. What does such a power, what such a display of power and compassion benefit Jesus when the recipient is a widow? A woman who is without means, influence, or power. Jesus is not playing a postmodern game of grab as much power as you possibly can. No, he is showing the power and the compassion of God. So you see this morning in your outline on page five and on the screen in front of you, the big idea for our time together this morning, and it's this, give yourself to the power and compassion of Jesus. Give yourself to the power and compassion of Jesus. Four points we want to make this morning. The first one is this. We need to let the Bible tell its story. We need to let the Bible tell its story. Folks who take the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible seriously are often told by those who do not that if you believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Bible, it means that you must have an issue with women. You must be a woman hater and a wife beater. You must be some sort of misogynist if you actually think that the Bible is true. Because the Bible, they argue, has a very low view of women. The Bible is a sexist and oppressive book, or so they want to tell us. But our text this morning, I think, paints a very different picture in terms of how the Bible views women and the value that the Bible places on women. Indeed, I would argue that all of the resurrection stories in the Bible, Jesus included, tell us precisely how just how much God views and values women. So let's think about the three resurrection stories that the gospel give us that aren't Jesus' resurrection. You have this particular story in which the woman is a widow. Now, being a widow means that with the death of her son, she will have no viable means of supporting herself. There's no way, legitimately, that she can make a living. She's going to be reduced to being a beggar. She's going to be reduced to relying on the kindness and the compassion of the community. And in restoring her son to her, Jesus is showing true compassion on a woman who can't really pay him back. There's nothing that she has to offer that Jesus needs. There's nothing that she could do to in any way seek to pay back Jesus for what she has done. Or think about the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. Again, this is a little girl. We know so because Jesus actually addresses her by that phrase when he tells her to get up after we're told that she is dead. Now, it would be one thing for Jesus to go out of his way and to help the ruler of the local synagogue if it was an only son. After all, in that particular culture, sons were valued highly, daughters not so much. In fact, one ancient writer comments that the only real value of women in that particular culture was their ability to give birth to sons. So this little girl is of no real cultural worth or value, and yet Jesus goes out of his way to call her from death back to life. Or we have the story of Lazarus. 
and his mourning sisters, Mary and Martha. Again, they do not have husbands. Their father is dead. And so these are women who are left with no viable means of supporting themselves. So not only is Jesus showing us the power of his word, not only is Jesus showing us the power that he has as the son of God over death and the grave, but he's also showing in all three of those instances that God values and cares for women greatly. Now, could he do more? Probably. But all three of these stories remind us that God shows great care and concern for women. We can give ourselves then over to the power of God, knowing of his absolute care for all of humanity. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your social status. God uses his power on behalf of all of his creation. Every human being is the beneficiary of God's great power. Now, that kind of power, I understand, is frightening. We've been reminded of the phrase, because it's true, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so when we see someone who can call the dead to life with just a word, there is, of course, a, a, there's a great fear and a great hesitancy to say, yes, I'm going to entrust myself entirely to a person who with a word can bring people back to life. Because if he can bring you to life with a word, then guess what else he can do with a word? He can slay me. And yet time and again, the Bible wants us to understand that Jesus is not only all-powerful, but he is also extreme. He is also the very picture of compassion. He's not a blend. It's not that some days Jesus is powerful and another day he's compassionate. It's not, we don't walk around going, you know, I hope I get Jesus on a 51% compassion day as opposed to a 57% power day because that would be terrifying. No, Jesus is the very definition of perfection of both of those things all the time. It's not a blend. It's not a hybrid. There's not a mix. He's both and. And when we let the Bible tell its story, we see that the omnipotency of the Lord Jesus Christ is always given to the benefit of his people. Well, that means then that we can indeed flee to the compassionate one. We can flee to the compassionate one. After Jesus has healed the servant of the centurion, Luke tells us that soon after this, he goes with a great entourage to a city called Nain. Nain was south and west of Capernaum, where he was uh, operating primarily. And as he gets to the city, there's another crowd coming. And it's not a crowd of people who are coming to greet him. Rather, it's a crowd of folks who are part of a funeral procession. Now, in the first century, funeral processions were a little different from the way that we take uh, folks from a funeral home or a church to the cemetery. What would happen is when someone died, immediately the body would be taken, it would be stripped, it would be washed, their hair would be cut, their nails would be trimmed, and whatever was their best clothing, that would be put on them. And then that day, within 24 hours of their death, they would be taken to the place in which they were going to be buried. 
And if you think about what happens uh, to things that die after a certain amount of time, you realize that without refrigeration and without, you know, um, uh, sort of modern approaches to embalming, you understand why this was. The body is going to start to decay, and so they want to get it to the place where it's going to be buried. And so a wicker basket would be made, uh, and it would be carried by a group of people. The body would be laid into it. The, uh, the family of the person who died would follow that. And after that, there was a group of folks within any village, any community that could be hired, and they were professional mourners. And you literally paid for people to come and mourn at the death of a loved one. And they would carry on, and they would chant, and they would cry. There's a really humorous scene in uh, the story when Jesus heals Jairus' daughter, and they get to the house, and the mourners say, hey, don't trouble yourself, she's dead. And they keep on wailing and gnashing their teeth. And Jesus says, oh, no, she's not dead, she's only asleep. And they go straight from their mourning, straight from their crying, straight from their carrying on, to they laugh at Jesus. And as one commentator put it, uh, very, it was very, uh, per, I, I think, this was a great insight. He says, only professionals can go from weeping to laughing that quickly. And that's what you would do. You would hire these people and they would come and they would mourn and they would carry on and they would accompany you to the burial spot and then everything would break up and you would return to your home for whatever the rest of your life to get used to the new normal would be. Well, Jesus and his entourage meets this funeral entourage. And I like what the text tells us in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do you notice how Luke makes it clear what it is that Jesus is looking at? Or I should say, who it is that Jesus is looking at? He's not paying attention to the crowd. He's not paying attention to the folks who are carrying on. He's not even looking at the dead body. No, the Bible tells us that he sees her. And seeing her, he moves towards her. That's part of what it means to be compassionate. Not only do you see someone in their need, but you move towards them because you're trying in some way, shape, or form to give aid. You're trying to show what it is that you're feeling for that individual, and so you move towards them, Jesus does. And the whole time, his focus and his attention is on the widow. In fact, it's holy on the widow. It's also interesting too, isn't it, that the minute in which Jesus performs this great miracle, he doesn't, uh, he, he tells her, verse 13, don't weep. But then it's interesting, when all of this is said and done, uh, Jesus doesn't do what a great many of us probably would have done. And he certainly doesn't do what we would celebrate within our culture. There's no grandstanding on Jesus' part. There's no chest thumping. I don't know about you, but if I could heal, if I could, if I could bring somebody back from the dead with just a word, I'd do it. I'd be like, "Yeah, 
What else you got? Or actually, uh, given the stuff I used to watch when I was growing up, namely wrestling, I'd probably do this. <laughs> Woo! I'd give it the full Ric Flair. And then in my post-resurrection press conference, I'd tell them that I'm a jet-flying, limousine-riding, wheeling-dealing son of a gun, and I'm having a hard time keeping these alligators down because, of course, that's what nature would do. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? No, the text echoes what we read in our Old Testament reading this morning. He gives the son to his mother. Friends, do you see, do you see the compassion in that? Jesus has just done something that nobody else can do. But he doesn't draw attention to what he can do. He doesn't in any way, shape, or form engage in any kind of self-promotion. No, what does he do? His focus is still wholly and entirely on the woman. I've raised your son. Here he is. Now, we, of course, cannot exercise compassion in that particular way, but I wonder, as those who are united with Jesus, should we not have something like this kind of compassion? Should we not, when we see people mourning, should we not, when we see people in distress and in need, should we not, when we see people just getting their tail kicked by life, should we not, as Jesus did, see them and move towards them? Should we not seek to speak words of life? Granted, we cannot say, young man, I say to you, arise. We can't pull that off. But we can speak to them words of life. We can speak to them words of comfort. And so I wonder this morning, is that what we're known for? Now, granted, opponents of the gospel will always have spiteful things to say about the church. But I wonder, as both individuals and as a congregation, are we known for our compassion? Are we known as being those who have an eye to see the need in the world that is around us and then both the desire and the wherewithal to move towards it. Jesus did. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? Thirdly, know that you're like the young man. Know that you're like the young man. Now, there are a couple ways in which we can think about this. Obviously, the young man is physically dead, and at the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's brought back to life. And the Apostle Paul, later in the New Testament, when he talks about the gospel, will remind us that we were once dead in our sin and in our trespasses, but we too have now been made alive in Christ. So there is a sense in which spiritually, what was true for the young man physically is true for us spiritually. We were dead in our sin and in our trespasses. But through the word of Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit, we're made alive again. 
And so we can understand, yes, spiritually speaking, the same thing is true for us. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you have experienced spiritual resurrection. You were dead in your sin and in your trespasses, but you've now been made alive together with the Lord Jesus Christ. But I wonder if you understand that that's actually true or going to be true of you literally, physically. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 has this to say. Now, I want you to just listen to this. You can turn to it later if you want. And don't, don't get all riled up. Sometimes... Uh, depending on the tradition you grew up in, when you hear words like Jesus is going to descend and you you think you get, you just, you don't listen. Because you heard words, you think you know what they mean, and then you just lose your mind. Well, just listen to what it is that we're told about the actual physical resurrection that is coming at the word of Jesus. Here's what Paul says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the shout of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What is Paul talking about? Again, don't get all worried about the rapture and who's left behind and how it is that Vladimir Putin is obviously in this text. It's not what he's saying. But listen to those words that with that the Lord himself will descend and with a cry of command, the dead in Christ will rise first. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, then you need to know that you are exactly like that young man. There is coming a day in which the Lord Jesus, when he returns, will speak a word, and just like that young man, you will be resurrected into life. In fact, Daniel tells us, and we read about it again later in Revelation, that when Christ returns, everyone who has ever lived is going to be resurrection or going to be resurrected at the word of the Lord Jesus. And as it's made clear to us in Daniel and again in Revelation, some will be resurrected into everlasting life, and some will be resurrected to shame and to contempt. Friends, we are all just like that young man. Not just spiritually. But no, literally, there is coming a day when Jesus returns and with a loud command, we will be resurrected. Fourthly, then, we need to stop guessing. We need to stop guessing. As we return back to Luke chapter 7, we're told that while Jesus doesn't showboat, while Jesus doesn't make great proclamations about who he is and about how awesome he is and how hard it is for him to keep these alligators down. Instead, the people do. Verse 16, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, 
and God has visited His people. It's interesting, isn't it, that they look at this, they see this happen, and their immediate response, yes, God has visited us, and He's visited us in the form of a prophet. Why? Why do they immediately jump to Jesus being a prophet? Well, it's because of the text that Colleen read for us this morning. Who is it that does this kind of resurrection? Well, it's only the prophets. It's not priests. It's not kings. In the Old Testament, it's only prophets who can do this. Now, please understand, this whole question of who is this person who does these things is a central question that all the Gospels are trying to answer. Each Gospel is giving us an answer to the question, who is Jesus? And the crowd that was there that morning at Nain, the crowd that was there either following the funeral procession or following Jesus, glorify God and they go, this has got to be a prophet. Yes, but he's more than that. Yes, Jesus is a prophet, but Jesus is also priest. And Jesus is also king. And Jesus is also the coming Messiah. And Jesus is also the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes and amen. Is he a prophet? Yes. But he's so much more than that. He's so much more than that. He is prophet. He is priest. He is king. He's the Lamb of God. He's the coming Messiah. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. And all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. So I wonder this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? Some quirky figure of ancient history. I mean, I hope you, you understand on the basis of what we've just said about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and then again in Daniel 12 and the book of Revelation, that Jesus is the one who commands your eternal destiny, full stop. And if you're here this morning and you're wrestling through questions like, well, what's the meaning of life? and What's this all even mean? Well, I would suggest by starting, by thinking about the individual who with a word is going to resurrect you from the grave. How about if we start there? Let's start with the one who created you. Let's start with the one who died for you. Let's start with the one who, with a word, will resurrect you, either to everlasting life or to shame and contempt. That seems to me to be the guy that we might want to think about and the guy that we might need to deal with. And here's the good news this morning. The good news this morning is we can indeed give ourselves to the power and the compassion of Jesus. See, this absolute power is not there to enslave us. It's not there to ruin our lives. The absolute power of God is not on display simply to terrorize us and make us wonder how long it is before he just wipes the whole thing. No, time and time again, we see in the Gospels 
the power of God is on display to help and to heal and to restore and to renew and to redeem. Yes, it's true. Absolute power corrupts absolutely for humans. But when you are fully God and you are fully man, then that is a power and a compassion that we can give ourselves to. In a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table, and the table certainly points us to resurrection. It is the story of one who was crucified, the one whose body was broken and whose blood was shed, who died, who was buried, but then on the third day was resurrected like we are going to be resurrected. It reminds us that we, too, are going to experience resurrection. And it is a picture for us of the power and compassion of God. Jesus could have used his power to escape the cross, but he didn't. Jesus could have used his power to wipe out everyone there who was gathered seeking to crucify him, but he didn't. No, instead, we see that Jesus' power and his compassion are on full display when he bowed his head and said, it is finished. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the hope that is ours in the gospel. Father, uh, not just hope in that our sins are forgiven, but hope in knowing that there's coming a day in which Jesus is going to return and with a command, we're going to be resurrected. And Father, I pray this morning that we would give careful thought to this idea that it's not okay, you're resurrected, and then you just get to play golf for the rest of eternity. But that resurrection carries with it its own consequences, some to everlasting life and some to shame and contempt. So, Father, I pray that we would wrestle with you and with your word. I pray that your spirit would be at work in us. Father, that we may know, as, as the Heidelberg Confession tells us, that uh, th there is hope that is ours. There is confidence to be had. That confidence is not found in anything that we have done. But that confidence is found in the one who is all-powerful and all-compassionate. And we pray these things now in his name. Amen.